Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the show our friend uh, Shauna Nequist. Hi, Shauna. Hey, how are you? I always feel like I'm getting your last name wrong. But no, what, Nequist, you're getting it right. Pretty good. Okay. I think because I got your I got it wrong the first time I talked to your husband. Maybe that's what it was. And this is just post traumatic. Yeah, about 100% of the time people get it wrong and say Nyquist, which is fine. We just totally answered it absolutely anything. That's um, nice. But it, it is technically, apparently, Nyquist. Got it right. Got it right. Okay, so uh, people know you, writer, speaker, your mom, obviously your wife, your pa- – do I say pastor, former pastor, pastor? No. No? No. Pastor's daughter, right? Yeah, now, yeah. I have three daughters, and so I'm always really curious as to um, seeing pastors' daughters who seem to have turned out pretty well. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I feel like you're doing good. So I'm paying attention. I'm just, I'm just taking notes. Thanks. I uh, <laughs> I feel like the most important thing my parents did really was give me a lot of space and a lot of freedom. Space and freedom. Okay, I'm yep. writing it down. Space, space and freedom. And obviously, you have turned out well. Okay, well, thank you. let me let me tell you a story. You like stories. I do like stories. Okay, good. Well, I think I just told you part of this before we started recording. But yeah, uh, two days ago, I'm on the old social media, and I see a picture of, I think it was Jared McKenna, Mm -hmm. because like I just told you, I mean, Jared McKenna and Jonathan Martin basically have a couple's Facebook account at this point. It's the same thing. Right. It's like how some couples do that. It's like the husband yeah. and wife, they just have their own. Team. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's basically that's what they're doing. And I saw uh, one of them was reading your new book, and I thought, oh, I need to talk to you about your new book. And so we set this up, and your um, publicist said, hey, can you do tomorrow? And I said, uh, send me the book, and I can do it. And, <laughs> and so she sends me a PDF of I'm reading it last night. I'm at a comedy club, which is a whole other story for another time, and I'm waiting, and so I'm reading it on my phone, and my first thought is, I feel like she's transcribed the conversations I've been having with my therapist, my psychologist, over the last two months, and put it into writing. So, yeah, is that yeah, true? Yeah, funny story. I've, I've been eavesdropping <laughs> at your therapy appointments. I hope that's not, I don't know if that crosses some sort of boundary. I've been there, and mm-hmm. I've just been taking notes. That, that, oh, that's a nice thing to say. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it's not weird at all if you do that. I mean... It's fine. <laughs> Go for it. Go like for a fun little I have, yeah. Yeah, okay. So let me, can I tell you another story? Yeah. Okay. And then we'll let you talk, but I just have a lot of stories mm-hmm. to tell, um, and, okay. and then you can talk. Um, I was talking to my psychologist at the beginning of July about a sermon series I'm going to start in September about work, and I said, yeah, I'm going to talk about work, and he literally laughed. He goes, <laughs> like you should be talking about that, and I thought... I pay you not to do that kind of stuff. That's that's brutal. But yeah. but when you're writing this stuff about being, uh, I don't know if you would self-identify as a workaholic or like finding identity from work or using, you do say you use work as a drug. Um, yeah. I'm going, yes, this is great. So uh, how about you fix me of all my problems because it sounds like your book has fixed you. So let's just jump into this. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the thing I would say about myself right now is I'm, I'm fixed just like in every way, just, just like a better person mm-hmm. than I was before in, in every single different way. So yeah, I can just take care of that for you. Great. Um, perfect. I think you have a great therapist who tells you like <laughs> the, the exact worst thing, right? That's what you need. That's what their job is. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty brutal and I think that's what makes someone a good therapist. So yeah. I'm do- Say that again. I think that's true. I think I think 
uh, brutal honesty is what you want from a therapist. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, when your dad is a psychologist and therapist, it becomes a little different because you don't want that from your dad all the time. So let's just... Is your dad a psychologist? Yes, he is. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you've got... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. I uh, With both a pastor dad and a pastor husband... Uh, there are times, like there are times when my husband will say to my dad, "Do not vision me about this." Right <laughs> like I do not, I do not want to be leadership on this. You can just tell me what to do, but do not cast a vision for how this is what I want to do. What do you think is worse, being the child of a pastor or the child of a psychologist? What do you think would cause more long-term problems? Well, I feel like I would. I mean, I don't really know, but. Being a pastor's kid, uh, everyone has a lot of weird expectations for you. Mm-hmm. And they, they're like, they run the gamut. You know, some people expect you to be perfect and some people expect you to be like the girl in Footloose and they're kind of disappointed <laughs> if you're not. So I don't know. When I think of like a therapist kid, I just think of like really articulate about their, their inner world. I think mm. that's a positive thing. Yeah, that, that is definitely not me. So um, <laughs> by the end of this conversation, you're like, oh, yeah, I was way off on that expectation for psychologist kids. That's not, that's not at all me. Um, okay, so uh, the book comes out, uh, I guess, in a week or two or something like that, and um, very excited about it. Um, Thank you. What, this is like the 1700th book of yours, is that right? It is, um, it's the fifth. The fifth. Yeah. And you got yeah. Brene Brown, your friend, to do the foreword. That's awesome. I was floored absolutely floored Mm -hmm. um i was really nervous to ask her um because we're friends but you know um i don't know her that well Mm -hmm. and i mean i i love her but she's not like my college roommate or something you know Um, and i was very nervous to ask her she's so busy and um i was that was such a great day when she said yes that's awesome and it was a nice story about you coming over their house and it was wonderful (laughs) now yeah uh since i started the podcast the one guest that i've never been able to get uh is Brene. so next Uh time you see her just tell her that guy from austin who's a pastor with a podcast he will stop stalking you if you just give him 40 minutes (laughs) and uh, i really i basically have a part-time job fielding emails that people want me to pass on to Brene brown (laughs) that's like my other job true but (laughs) i've never done that to you so don't don't include me in that list I cannot even tell you how many people have. Oh, I know. I, my my wife's uncle used to work at uh, University of Houston. Is that right? Is that where she? Yeah. yeah. He was a professor yeah, yeah. there, and uh, and he said, "Yeah, you can't even like." Th- there are so many people at the University of Houston who are trying to get here, probably for the same reason people are doing. Yeah, yeah it's. But the the point of that, she's done such amazing work that so many people have been blessed by. She is unbelievable. Absolutely. And something else people are going to be blessed by is this book. So let's jump right into it. That's a transition. There you go. I I felt that. Okay. So let's jump right into this whole like work stuff. Um, You had this great line that you say, uh, if I hustle long enough, the emptiness will never catch up with me. And you talk about how there are different ways that you've hustled, uh, maybe living a a footloose-ish character lifestyle during college. (laughs) Yeah. Which you told some stories on the uh, podcast that Ian and Suzanne are doing for the Enneagram, which if people right. want to hear more about that, listen to that podcast whenever it comes <laughs> out in a few weeks, you'll tell more about that. And then it's parenting and then it's work. Like how, some people would hear this and go, I don't understand how work and parenting, those are really good things. How can those become drugs? I mean, anything you put as a buffer between you and your feelings or you and your most honest thoughts, um, I think is, I think anything you're using to anesthetize yourself 
to numb yourself becomes a drug and it totally can be good things. Um, and it can be good things that turn into bad things, you know? Um, so for me, if I worked, 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 I didn't have to think about the fact that I felt so afraid or so empty or like I wasn't living the way I wanted to. It, it gave me a reason to not have to listen to my feelings. Yeah. And so running from this, as you called it, the emptiness, uh, makes perfect sense to me. I'm also an Enneagram seven, which, which you are as well. Uh-oh. And so like running from these feel like I get that, like that is a really yeah. good game plan in my opinion. Um, it worked for me for a long time. If someone's going to push you and go, what do you mean by emptiness? How else would you articulate what that is that, that you're hustling away from? Well, I had this amazing experience, um, amazing slash terrible, um, where I, I had an experience with my son. We were snorkeling together where I felt sort of like there was no noise. There was nowhere I could go. I was just snorkeling with him and this kind of deep well of almost like, like self-loathing, like self-hatred, like I don't like the person that I am. And these terrible feelings are rising up in me. And I, I realize that's why I keep running all the time because I hate feeling those feelings. That's why I keep working. That's why I keep the volume up really loud. Like, metaphorically and otherwise in my life. And I was telling some friends about it, about like that, that inner terrible feeling, that inner like self hatred almost. And they were like, I don't, I don't feel that on the inside. Like I, I don't. And I was like, Oh, well, that's amazing for you. Like, (laughs) uh, I I guess I didn't realize we don't all feel that. Mm -hmm. But when I realized I really do feel it, and other people don't, I realize there, then there, there has to be something I can do um, to replace or heal or mend that emptiness. And that is what pushed me a lot deeper into another round of counseling, time with the spiritual director, practice of silence and centering prayer, essentially trying to, to rebuild the foundation, to replace the emptiness with a sense of God's unconditional love. Um, I think I've been trying to cover over or just ignore the emptiness for a long time and it just doesn't work mm. long term. So now I'm trying to fill it consciously with a sense of God's love. Mm, that's good. And you said uh, silence and centering prayer and, and that discipline has been very beneficial for me. Why do you think it's so beneficial for you? Well, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that it's beneficial for you. I think Um, I think it's probably really beneficial for all people. I think if you're an Enneagram person, Enneagram sevens have such a tendency to always be running in their mind, in their feelings, in their bodies, like just more, more, more of everything. And so when you turn the opposite direction of that and you go kind of hard in the other way, what you, what, what you find then is silence and focus on just one thing, not many things. And a lot of times it's kind of acting against type that transforms us. And so continuing the motion and the franticness and the chaos is never going to lead me to healing, but going hard the other direction into silence and stillness, I think is changing my life. Mm, yeah, that's good. That's very helpful. And I think something else that, that will be helpful is this line that you have in the book that I think if someone's struggling with, um, this type of issue, um, this, I think is, could be a great mantra where you say, uh, that you remind yourself this, that this, whatever this is, this will not make me feel loved. So if that's why I'm saying yes, that's not a good reason. The love I want will not be found here. That's so helpful. Totally. How long has that been something that you've been reminding yourself of? Well, you know, I had to, so 
three and a half years ago, I really had this moment where I realized um, I'm working way, way, way too much. My schedule has just completely gotten away from me. I'm traveling too much. I'm speaking too much, I'm not spending any time with my family. I'm not spending almost any time alone. Um, and so practically speaking, I had to start saying no to a lot of things that I had previously been kind of known for saying yes to, mm -hmm. you know, places that I spoke every year, colleges or churches or conferences, all of a sudden I'd always been the girl that says yes. And now I'm saying no. And it was really hard for me to say no. And I realized that, um, I thought always saying yes would make me feel loved mm -hmm. and always saying yes, just made me feel exhausted. Um, and so I had to really kind of retrain myself that what you want, this deep sense of presence and love and connection does not come from pleasing people out there. It comes from being connected deeply to people in here, around my table, in my home, in my close community. Um, but so I had to retrain kind of my impulses. It's like my instincts were off mm -hmm. and I always went left when you're supposed to go right. And now I had to retrain my brain to make a new set of decisions. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you talked about your critical journey being moving away from dependence on external expectations, which is like, oh, you're always the girl who can do this, um, mm -hmm. which seems like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't come very naturally to so many of us because external expectations have in a lot of ways become like the mode of operation for, for so many of us. And so it, if you're trying to help someone imagine to do this, and it's not like speaking engagements or writing expectations, how would you help them do that in um, it, like a nine to five kind of job, a normal kind of typical lifestyle? Yeah. And you know, what's, uh, you know, it wasn't just me learning how to say no to speaking engagements. It's also learning how to say no to like no, I can't come to that baby shower because I need to be at my kid's thing or no, I can't like, um, normal life stuff, learning to let people just be disappointed in order for you to live according to your values. I think for me, it's been really important to picture things in terms of concentric circles. So at the center of the circle is my own relationship with God, my husband and my kids, we are the center of that circle. And then one ring out is um, my parents, my brother, my very closest friends, but still like three friends, not 30 friends. Do, and they, then out and then do out. those three know who made it into that second circle? No, I change it every time. <laughs> and I say a different number every time. So they, yeah, I keep them on their toes. Yeah. This time it's, mm. no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, but you have the second circle and then, so you have this, do yeah. you literally go through like where someone is on, or the, where that activity or something is on that, uh, that diagram? I, I really do picture it in those ways because I, for a while, it's like, it's like everyone was equal and I couldn't disappoint that one girl I met one time at one event, but I also didn't want to disappoint like, you know, my husband. Well, those are two really different relationships. Yeah. So picture those content, concentric circles. Like if I disappoint that girl I met one time, she's not going to like, uh, going to have to go to her counselor and talk about it. Right. Yeah. But if I disappoint my husband often enough, I'm the only wife he has, ideally, you know, <laughs> so um, that's a much more important relationship. And so what I, what I focus on is necessarily the nature of being a person is you will disappoint someone. Yeah. I, I want to make sure that I am uh, disappointing the people in those inside circles as absolutely rarely as possible. And I want to get more comfortable disappointing the people on the edges of those circles. Um, and I hope that they have people in the center of their circle that are not disappointing them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But, 
But if I slip into believing, um, Anne Lamott has this amazing line about the day she realized she was not the flight attendant for the planet. It's <laughs> a great line. Right? So good. And that's so common, I think, for, for Christians, for women, um, for people who want to be known as like kind and capable and responsible. You end up like, like just walking through the world, accepting responsibility for things that are completely not yours. Yeah. And now I'm trying to train myself to be deeply responsible for my own faith, for my kids, for my husband, for a very small group of people to give very well and very freely to them, but to really be reserved in my commitments beyond that. Yeah. The line in the book that, that I wrote down was, you decide who you are going to disappoint. And I think that is very life-giving and freeing for a lot of people. Because I think so many people like live like Anne Lamont says, like I'm I'm the flight attendant for the entire world. That's a terrible way to live. Like there is no life in that. Totally. You, okay, so there's a, a great story you tell about a uh, I think it was like a young pastor going to an older pastor that uh, the church is going a, a ton, and he said I didn't do anything to make this happen, and uh, which sounds like very humble, and and I think that's a really yeah. good motive, um, but. The pastor says to him, like, well, aren't, aren't you the one who put the chairs out? And I thought, oh, that's such a good metaphor. Like a lot of times mm-hmm. people want to act like they have no um, responsibility to the frenetic mm-hmm. lifestyle that they're living. But each of us in like our own small ways enable that. And so you say that you're going to stop putting the, you're going to put the chairs away, which is a great mm-hmm. metaphor. Oh, thank you. So if, if someone's trying to think of, okay, what does that look like for me to, to stop leaving so many chairs out? Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I, I said this before, but like your lifestyle, my lifestyle as a pastor, it's different from like normal people. And so they hear your expectations of, of writing and speaking and they go, well, that, that, that doesn't really translate. To, yeah. Does that make sense, right? Like it's different. Yeah. Yeah. How would you help them imagine like putting the proverbial chairs away uh, of someone yeah. with a more traditional lifestyle? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think all of, you know, it's, you can live a profoundly frantic, out of control, overly busy, fragmented life, no matter your job and no matter your schedule. Um, I know people who have very, um, what looks to, what looks at the outside, very few responsibilities in the grander scheme of things. But the way they live, they're still hustling every day for their worth, whether it's about working out or shopping or, you know, so it's not just about a job like mine or a job like yours. You can experience deep exhaustion and burnout um, and live a frantic life no matter what's on your plate or not. Um, And so I think a lot of it comes down to being really honest about your own season and your own limitations and building a life that, that has the right kind of size for those things. Um, so, you know, in my world, like, uh, a couple years ago, I spoke 55 times. Um, this year I'll speak about 12. Wow. Those are really different numbers. Um, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, and a lot of us, you know, there are some people that do like a super traditional nine to five, but like even, so my cousin, Amanda, she's one of my best friends. She's a first grade teacher. Mm -hmm. So that seems like, well, she either goes to work or not. Right. Like, Her choices are pretty cut and dried. Well, she can or can't be on various committees. She can or can't coach. She can or can't tutor. She can or can't volunteer. So all of our lives, we get to decide kind of the size of it. Um, Certainly for people who freelance, you have a little bit more range of motion. Um, But we all have those decisions. And to be honest, a lot of my friends um, who are stay-at-home moms feel 
the pressure all the time to be, um, because they're stay-at-home moms, they feel like they're the ones who have to be involved in everything at the school, who have to be coaching every team, who have to be the Girl Scout troop leader, because they feel like, well, I mean, I'm not going to ask a, a mom who's working full-time in an office. So all of us in different ways feel these pressures. And the question is, um, are we brave enough to be honest about the limitations and the capacity that we have? And put out the right size, the right amount of chairs for this particular season of life. That's 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 so good, so freeing for so many people. And as a pastor, um, I wish more people would hear that because I feel like a lot of the frenetic lifestyle is by choice. Like we we choose this excessive calendar, and it doesn't. Like you said, you're not going to be loved because of the, this. Is not where you're going to find love. And so you have this line that you say the best thing. I can offer to this world is not my force or energy, but a well-tended spirit, a wise and brave soul. Like, I love it. It's not, it's not a book. It's not a speaking gig. It's not, you know, whatever thing it's, it's you being your best self, like who you're intended mm-hmm. to be. H- how do people move to that sort of disposition towards the world that the best thing I can offer isn't something that I can create, but who I am? I think you know, I got to a point where I realized I could keep making stuff at this pace and I could keep showing up at events at this pace, but I was, I was not going to be able to keep writing and speaking at this pace and maintain a well-tended or wise soul. So it was, it was one or the other, like two roads diverged and I was going to decide which one I was going to take. And I realized some of it is just, it's, I, I have kind of a long-term plan. Like when I think about you as a pastor, I want you to live in such a way that you can be a pastor forever, yeah. right? That you can continue to grow and help people and serve people, but have a well-tended enough inner life that it's not like you have three amazing bonkers. Everybody thinks you're wonderful because you show up at every single thing. And then three years from now, you're like selling real estate because you just cannot go back to church one mm-hmm. more time. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm watching that all around me. I'm watching writers um, who just shut the whole thing down because they're so tired. I'm watching pastors walk away from the churches they've built because they're so beyond exhausted. And so I think, the name of the game for us has to be what allows us to live um, long-term. Um, the, the words I've been using lately kind of as a vision for, for writers or whoever is slow, durable, and beautiful. That's, mm. that's what I want our careers to be. Um, I, you know, I, I talked to a group of writers last week and I said, I do not wish for you a viral post. I wish for you a slow, durable, beautiful career. You know? I love that. that's so good. I love slow, slow, durable. That's that's really that's so helpful. So this last, so the reason I could do this podcast on short notice is because in July I don't preach. So I went to a new church in the fall and I said, hey, I I just don't preach in July. Part partly because it's Texas and it's just too hot to preach in July. <laughs> it just gets really angry. Uh, but the other part is that, like I don't want to just preach a good like you know, 50 sermons this year, because I don't preach 50, but I want to be able to preach good sermons for the next decade. And you can't do that unless you recharge. And that's the slow, durable. That's, that's the way to go. That's good. Okay. So you talked about the, uh, first of all, the, I think it was like in the second or third chapter, you, or early on in the book, you talked about sea change, which mm-hmm. comes from Shakespeare's The Tempest, which of course I knew that. I mean, I didn't need you to fill <laughs> me in. Of course I know that. But when I read that, I go, there are a ton of pastors who are like, I'm going to use that very quickly when I talk about baptism because it's a yeah. great 
metaphor. Um, and so you talk about like this is a sea change. Like you go into the water and you're a different person when you come out, which like you connected the dots in, in the book. It is baptism. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like life is like all these changes that continually happen over and over again. And so you have this this chapter in your life that you, you're you're like 36 when you're writing the book. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I turn 35 next month, just FYI, in case you want to get me a present. Happy birthday. Thank you. What, what day? Of the 25th. Okay. I'm the 17th. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, happy birthday to you as well. Thank you. My, you too. My, I have uh, a daughter who's a birthday on the 8th and the 14th. Mine's the 25th and yours is the 17th. So it's like... We are going to have, we could have like just one big party. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Not in Texas because of how hot it is. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. But <laughs> like, so we're in our thirties and to say that like, this is a change that's who I am forever. Like this is a terrifying thing as a writer. Cause you put something on paper that lasts that people, hopefully they'll read this in decades from now. And you're like, well, I'm a different person at, at 55. And yeah. do you, are, are you a fan of Adele? Like the singer? Yeah, totally. Of course, like you should. Not a fan of it. I don't know. It's, it's but like her last three albums have all been her age, mm-hmm. and I like that. I like that as a writer. It's like this is who I am at thirty six. But mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some other change that happens down the road. So, like, how do you balance that tension of this is a big change in your in this phase of your life, but you know, more changes are going to come. Totally. So on one hand, I think about the books, I mean, they're essentially time capsules. Like it's such a funny thing to me. I'll meet someone and they'll be like, oh, um, I feel like I know you. I just read Cold Tangerines. And I'm like, oh, like that baby I was pregnant with in Cold Tangerines is almost 10 years old. So, you know, a a person that I was 10 years ago, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But um, each book is very much a season of life. And so on one hand, I really do like, yeah. When I'm 55, I'll look back at that that little season I was in when I wrote Crescent Over Perfect, you know? Um, but at the same time, one of the great things about books and about preaching, certainly, is um, you say it and then you have to live it. Yeah. And I'm really conscious of that. And I have always said that a lot of the writing that I do is for my own health and healing. And um, if I talk with you in three years and I'm like, oh yeah, my, my thing now is like, it's basically just being frantic and <laughs> hustling for my birth every day. It's my, my new jam. Yeah. You'll be like, no, it's not no, you don't get because that. I, I read the journey that you went on. I, I read your sea change. Right. So, um, part of the, one of the best things and the worst things about being a writer is having people quote your own stuff back to you and be like, Hey, you don't believe this, right? Like, <laughs> you're not living present over perfect right now. And I'm like, Hey, shut up, you know? <laughs> and, and then right after that, I say, thank you. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to say this because I want to be held to this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's healing and healthy for me. Yeah. I don't know if Aaron's ever done this to you, but my wife has quoted sermons back to me like a few weeks down the road when I'm not doing it. And it just, like you said, just, just keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear that. Yeah. No, it's the, don't do that. Okay, so someone who heard this, and like me, they love the line about this, like when they're making decisions about what they're going to do, what they're not going to do, and they like this line about, this will not make me feel loved. And like, that's a reminder they want to go with. Like, as they're trying to do that, what have you found, like, this is a, a practice that keeps at the forefront of your mind? Is there something that reminds you to keep on filtering everything through that? Is there something that you could give them to, to help keep that at the forefront of their, their decision-making processes? Well, I would say, um, 
I begin every day with a couple minutes of silence, really. And like, like three, like not like 90 minutes. Hmm. Um, um, but what I do is I do there. And the purpose of that is two things. I ground myself deeply in God's unconditional love. So I, I sit in silence, usually outside, generally with my coffee. And I remind myself of the truth that is there's nothing I can do in the course of this day to earn more love from God. And there's nothing I can do in the course of this day to ruin or squander his love for me. Mm-hmm. Done. Well, once you start your day in that place, then you're very free, right? You could work really, really hard and make the world better. And that's awesome, but didn't make you more valuable. You could play, you could rest, you could connect with people, you could read, you, but, but but your overall worth on this planet has already been decided. There's so much freedom in that. So I start there and then I think through the day, um, Donald Miller taught me this and I love it. And he does it in his kind of life planning thing. Um, when he writes out his to-do list for the day, there's a little segment on it that says, and it's something like, if I get to the end of the day and didn't do this, I'll regret it. Mm-hmm. And for him, a lot of times when, when he and I were talking about it, it was when he and Betsy had just gotten married. And so he was still getting used to being a, a married person. And most often what he wrote down was meaningful connection with Betsy. So he knew like, I'll get these tasks done. I'll get my meetings done, but it won't be a, a great day unless I connected meaningfully with Betsy. Mm-hmm. And so I think through that, I think through what I have to do today. And I think through, you know, normally my, my old self, my kind of knee-jerk impulse is like, what do I need to get done? What's on the list and what can I knock out? And now I think through what are the opportunities to connect with God, to rest my body, to connect meaningfully with the people I'm close to, to enjoy the beauty of the world that God made. Where, How am I going to, my to-do list now looks a lot more like read a novel for 30 minutes, connect meaningfully with each of my boys, make sure that I play, make sure that I go outside, make sure that I, it sounds like I'm in prison, (laughs) make sure that I go outside. (laughs) That's good. Don't get shanked, you know, in the bathroom. Totally. Volunteer in the library. It'll get you out on good behavior. Um, So my to-do list used to be about what I was going to achieve and what I was going to get done and and how many things I could finish or produce. Mm -hmm. And now it's a lot more about um, connection, focus, um, being entirely with the people that I'm with. Um, and that, I find that that practice starting the morning, thinking through it in those terms changes a lot. Oh, that's good. Well, uh, as a pastor, one of the highest compliments I can give to a writer is I will be ripping off this book in a sermon at some point in the future. So, um, that's just my, I don't feel like I need to quote you if I tell you that in my podcast, isn't (laughs) that's that's legally binding, I think, but, uh, (laughs) thanks again for the time. Thanks for the book. I think this is going to help a lot of people and it's already helped me. So, uh, well done on the book. Appreciate you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.